Thank you, Pastor Jeff and Shannon. Let me talk to you tonight about our study, and I am really excited about just being here and about our study and about all of you that are here tonight. And let me tell you a little bit about Acts and where we're going. I'm going to bring you up to snuff a little bit and tell you a little bit about what's happened so far because Luke's taking his time and I want to take my time. I put a title on this tonight is Trust in the Tempest. One of the hardest things you'll ever do is trust in the tempest. We're studying Paul's final trip, his final voyage as he travels to Rome itself. I showed you this last week. It's starting out in Jerusalem, and it's an echoing effect all the way to Rome. And let me tell you something. It's one of Paul's desires, as you will see, to actually preach from Rome. The sea voyage is long, and it's quite difficult. This will tell, take you a little bit in the ropes of it, but Luke's going to take his time. You'll, you'll hear me say that many, many times. He's starting off, by the way, from Caesarea, where Paul's been in prison for two years, and that's this, this uh, this travel, this way he's going. Luke gives us detail after detail, loading us up with not just anticipation, but with anxiety and with frustration and with hope and with, uh, and with life lessons. Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, as I told you. We have four Gospel writers, and sometimes we need to analyze how they wrote. So tonight I want to give you a little bit of a chart that's made up. Uh, we know that Matthew is very analytical. Now notice the cross that's there. You have one that, that on the top is task-oriented. That's, that's two on the top. Another one people-oriented, the two on the bottom. Some of them, one of them on this side, two of them on this side, slow. They don't want, they don't want to rush through their stories. And these, this side is very fast. We know that Matthew is analytical. He's task-oriented and he's slower. He has a slower pace. We know that Mark is assertive. He's just going to say it right out there, and he's fast, and he's task-oriented. We know if you go down to the right that John is animated. He wants that. He is about people. He wants, the, he wants people to, to associate with Christ. And we know Luke is amiable. He's likable, but he's also, he's also slow, and he, is, and he wants to relate it to, to people. So let me give it to you another way. The four gospel writers this way. So Matthew is, ana is analytical. He's ethical. Teaching of Jesus. He's orderly. He links it to the Old Testament. He's speaking to the Jews, and it's what Jesus Jesus said. He's quoting what Jesus said all through Matthew. Mark is a driver. By the way, they all spoke about the same things. They spoke in different ways and different styles. Mark is a driver. He is blunt. He's straight to the point. And he's full of action. We have John down here. He's animated. Jesus' relationship with people. And he'll tell us signs to persuade us and uses a lot of poetry. And then we have Luke. He's amiable. The one we're studying now with Acts. He's slow. He's detailed. He's task-oriented. He wants to paint a picture, and he wants to lead you to ask questions. Luke does not want to tell you the answers. He wants to give you things so that you can say, why is he putting that in there? Why is this happening there? I think we should do that with every verses, every Bible part we read, but I think especially with Luke, because he purposely is doing that. Now, if you were to look at the internet and the web, and you see how many people read Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, who would you think they read the most? Very good. They read John the most. They read John the most because they can relate to John. They're so different, not what they portrayed, but how they portrayed Jesus and how they portrayed the gospel. Because their personalities were different. Uh, Luke is slow, again, detailed, amiable, analytical side. He's also very task-oriented. Again, he wants to paint that picture. He takes his time. He sticks to, this, to tell the story. He gives amazing details and wants you to ask questions. Again, most people will listen to, will listen to John. He's more upfront. He's simple. His message is simple in his relationship with people. Whereas Luke is leading you to dive deeper. Luke is not someone you read just to read through. You don't want to do that. You want to dive deeper. You're going to miss a whole lot of the scripture of what Luke's saying if you read straight through the Gospel of Luke and straight through Acts. You're going to miss a whole lot because he has packed this thing up with all kinds of details so that you can dive a little deeper. How many of you know I enjoy diving deep? I brought my scuba gear tonight. 
Such is the story of him telling in Acts. He's leading us. He wants us to feel what those on this voyage are feeling. And by the time you're done reading this you're, and studying this, you're going to feel it. He wants you to feel all the drama, all the emotions, all the expectations with all the details. So when I teach it, and so well as I teach any part of Scripture, I'm going to go into the details and give you the background. Because so, if he's naming it, he's going to name a couple pieces, a, a place uh, in the sea tonight. Most people run right past it. We're going to go tell you exactly what he's saying. So we already studied the beginning of this, of this trip in, in uh, Acts. In Acts chapter 27, when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, for Italy, this is from Caesarea, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of uh, Andrometium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica. We saw last week. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. He's still in uh, uh, upper, Egypt, upper Israel, if I should tell you that. We know that he's taking off from a ship like this. It is a cargo ship. It's a smaller ship. It has one mast and it's taking off. They found some in the Mediterranean. I showed you last week. It looks just like this. And so we know that he is, he is the Bible tells us, uh, and we just read it to you, that they're taking off from here, Caesarea. They're stopping at Sidon. Then they're going to go underneath Asia, in between Cyprus and Asia. And their idea is to go here and it's to actually go here and and uh, straight through it to Italy so they get diverted and we'll show you that in a moment so that's what it's telling us so it's under Cyprus along the coast they came to Myra uh, they changed ships by the way and we'll show you that in a moment right here it says this and coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So we know that there's somewhere right here. The ship is from, is from uh, Andrometium uh, in Mysia, and it's coming probably from here. It goes to Caesarea, and now it's returning. And so they come here, and they're going to change ships. You'll see that. So they change ships, and the ships they change to is this ship. This is, a, this is an Egyptian ship. It is a ship that's not a cargo ship anymore, but this is a ship that is a grain ship. Uh, they are going on, and uh, we see them. That's a rebuilt one, as a matter of fact. It's large. Acts 27.9 says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now in danger because of even fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. So I want you to understand what's, what's going on here and understand what is being said. Uh, something's going on to tell us that uh, Luke gets more technical. He's going to tell us a couple things here tonight. There's a profound theological truth that is there that we studied last week. We know that basically they're right here at this point. They're right there, right on, that, on the tip of the western tip of Crete. And uh, basically they're at a place called Phoenix. And uh, that's where we are. That's where we left off last week. And so as we're there, they want to stay there for the winter because there's some, there's some tough winds coming in. Listen, this is not a time to, to sail. We told you that last week. Here's the nor'easter that's coming in. It's blowing against them. They will make no progress if they try to go. So most ships will winter here. They started out late. It was a mistake for them to go there. Paul knew it was a mistake. So we see that's where we, we kind of ended up. Tonight we move on to the, the deeper and more profound truth. But before I do, let me tell you that was a decision making and the decision making has to be spiritual when you make a decision. I 
showed you this last week. Basically, when you make a decision, you have tradition that can make you make a decision, experience, and reason. All those things are great, but it's Scripture that has to pre have preeminence over all of those. You know, my tradition, growing up Catholic, made me make a decision to go to Catholic Church. It was the tradition, my experience was there, and it was good reasoning because all my family went there. But Scripture trumped it out. I saw things in Scripture that didn't coincide with my Catholic upbringing or teachings, so I made a different decision. And we know the same thing is true for presidents and for, and for pastors and for rulers and for kings. You need to have God's sovereignty, biblical integrity, and human creativity. One of the things I like about Trump is he is creative. Let me tell you what that means. Everybody before him did whatever everybody else did. It was that, it was that wheel of bureaucrats. And you could call him a firebrand or somebody out, the, but he's creative. He's going to do things. It doesn't matter if nobody else did them. And so he's going to do them just to make it happen. So, and I believe if he has God's sovereignty and biblical integrity in that, obviously with Israel he has, some advisor telling him the truth, uh, then that you're going to see a powerful decision that comes out. So the, tonight we're going, to start, we're going to start there at the trust in the tempest. And, uh, Luke takes us on to Acts chapter 27, verse 13 to 17. And when the south wind blew softly, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Now, Paul tells them, stay right where we are. It's going to be bad. And so they, but they see a soft wind blowing. And it says, but not long after this, there arose a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. That's the northeastern or nor'eastern. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we have much work to come by by the boat. Look at all the details Luke's given us. He says, which when they have taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strike sail, and so are driven. Now that's more of the message. Let me give you what the King James says. It's a lot more detailed. It says this, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire to go, go out to sea, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, it's breaking the winds, we secured the skiff. So now we know that this ship has a smaller boat on it. There's a smaller boat to, to get to land. There's a, so they secure it because the, ship, the, the skiff is, is obviously being violently tossed. When they had taken it on board, so usually it's on the side of the ship, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. How many of your Bibles have that Sirtis sands in it? Raise your hand. How many have it in it? Look at that. Raise your hand if you have that in it. You have a King James Bible, don't you? So it's not used in a whole lot of other Bibles. And here's where sometimes translations are great. But this is, anybody else have it in any other translation? NIV has it. Where else? How many of you do not have it and you have something else? Raise your hand. Well, four of you raise your hand that's in your King James and nobody raise your hand that's in something else. I know there's more than four people here. Read that verse. If you have it opened, look. Sirtis Sands. How many have Sirtis Sands in your Bible? How many of you don't have your Bible? Okay. It's all right. Listen. How many of you do not have it in your Bible you're reading? Raise your hands. Okay. So why would Luke put it there? The King James, it's there. It's a, sp a specific name. Why would he put it there? What's going on here? What does he want us to know? Why tell us about all these islands? The Sirtis Sands, what are they? Uh, and why mention them? Anybody? They're a sandbar, but even, it's even worse than the sandbar. By the way, they're still there today. Here's the Sirtis danger, if I could show it to you. When you're crossing the Mediterranean, right here is the Sirtis Major Rift. 
This is where they were, and they're crossing, and these winds are going to blow them down into here. It's right opposite Libya in northern Africa. Now, I want to I really explain it to you tonight, and you may be saying, well, why would you do that? Because there's a reason. So you have the lesser Sirius uh, Gulf of, of Gabes, and the Sirte rise, and the greater Sirtis. Uh, this right here, Crete's over in here, here's Italy, and so they're trying to get across here, and they're blown into this. It's extremely important for us to understand it. The ocean is topographical. It has mountains, it has rifts, it has valleys. Uh, we're watching the Kilauea uh, erupt on, on, uh, on Hawaii. It's a hot spot in the Ring of Fire. Hawaii is formed, all the, all the islands, the eight islands are fo formed by volcanoes. There's other islands underneath the water forming right now through volcanoes that will come up in, in years from now. So we see that here's Crete. And look at these mountainous things. So once they come over here, there's rifts they can travel. But, and seafarers would know that. But there's other areas where they have some sands that are there. The sands and the silt is collected. And obviously, because the winds have been blowing this way, the sand comes with it underneath, and it banks up all around here for thousands of years. And so sailors knew that they had to stay away from it. Now, I'm going to give you a little techni technical uh, uh, information on it. Is that all right? Thank you. Here you go. There's a long history of ancient accounts that give descriptions of the Sirtis Sands. One description of the Sands is from Apollonius of Rhodes, 3rd century BC, that's 230. In his legendary book uh, Argonautica, also known as Jason and the Golden Feast, he describes a ship that was near the land of Pelops, present-day Peloponnesus. That's in Greece, by the way. That was hit with a deadly blast of the north wind, that's the Eurocladon, that seized them in mid-course and carried them toward the Libyan Sea for nine whole nights and many days until they came far into Sirtis, the legendary shoals and the, uh, for ships. Once they are forced to enter that gulf, for everywhere are shallows, everywhere. Uh, Strabo, an ancient Greek philosopher from Pontus, who lived at the end of the first century B.C., before Christ, and beginning at the first century AD, described the location of the dimensions of the greater and lesser Sirtis in his geography. Olson observed that the greater Sirtis breath, uh, the, le the uh, lesser Sirtis is in the western, are the two bodies of water. And he writes, of the Sirtis, the lesser is about 1600 stradia in circumference. That's fairly long, by the way. And the island Menix, known as Gerba, and Circina lie at either side of its mouth. So he's giving you the location of where you can sail and where you cannot. Today it's called the Gulf of Gabes, located off the southern eastern coast of Tunisia. Elsewhere, he describes these two bodies of water in these terms. The difficulty with both the greater Sirtis and the little Sirtis is that in many places their deep waters contain shallows. And the result is, at the ebb and the flow of the tides, that sailors sometimes fall into the shallows and they stick there. And that the safe escape of a boat is rare. On this account, sailors keep at a distance when voyaging around the coast, taking precautions not to be caught off their guard and driven by winds into these gulfs. That was written in, one B, in, in the first century BC. So basically, they knew, sailors knew this, they knew that you can get into this deep water and as soon as it ebbs and flows, it'll put you on a sandbar. You're not in a sandbar close to land, you're in the depth of the sea. And so you're dead. You can't go anywhere. You stay there. And sometimes you'll stay there for an awful long time because your ship will, stay, will stick in those sands. Now, how many of you are starting to see this shipwreck a little bit differently tonight? So this is the danger that's been there. The conclusion of the matter is this. 
Why were the sailors afraid of the Syrtis Sands? The Syrtis is two bodies of water in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of North Africa. Even with good luck, if you believe in that, Procopius' words, the sailors of the Alexandrian grain ship carrying the Apostles Paul. And by the way, it has a huge drought. It's carrying lots of tons of grain, so it's riding low in the water. Uh, the, uh, the Alexandrian grain ship carrying the Apostle Paul and Dr. Luke were terrified, the sailors were, because they knew they were doomed if they hit the Syrtis Sands. They, there's no escaping them. You're dead. You die of starvation. You don't have enough food on it. You don't have, you don't have fresh water. You're dead. And so it's not something just a little shipwreck. This is, they knew this. They knew if we get stuck here, everyone that ever gets stuck here dies. So this is not, well, we might get out. The grain ships were the largest ships plying the Mediterranean Sea at that time with a deep draft. And they were easily have gotten grounded on a sandbar in the middle of nowhere, many miles from any shoreline. The old sailor's axiom would hold true. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink because it's, it's salt water. They would have plenty of grain to eat on the ship, but not a drop of water to go with it. They were afraid of a slow and painful death by dehydration. Luke wants you to know that. He wants you to know exactly what they're facing. This is not just a shipwreck where you can go on an island and eat some coconuts. This is something where if they're wrecked this ship, and it, it, everyone's dying. This, he's setting you up for a miracle. He's setting you up for the hand of God. How many of you see it? He's letting you understand something, and I don't want to delineate that. I want to bring you exactly what he's doing. So he goes on. In Acts 27, he says this. Uh, when, New King James. When they had taken it on board, this is the skiff, they used cables to undergird the ship. Obviously, it's getting torn apart. It's a, it's a wooden ship. And he's telling you this. Why would you care that they're using cables? There's a reason. Uh, so, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Syrtis Sands, they stuck, struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. One translation says, everyone lost hope. That's everyone except someone. Now, they throw the tackle. What's tackle? Well, tackle is planks, ropes, block pulleys, turnbuckles, rigging that hoist sails up and down. They're actually saying, if we throw these overboard, we have no way to navigate. But we have to do that because it's survival. We're not going to be able to, to that, if, the, if the sea calms, we're not going to be able to strike our sails because we threw everything overboard that can be used to strike our sails. So this is a no hope, uh, everything gone, last ditch effort just to stay alive, hoping that someone might come by when they don't know. So we know this, by the way, how many of you ever heard this? By, well, before I get there. In an effort to save the ship, cargo is thrown overboard. Cables are drawn under the hull of the ship and tightened to keep the vessel from breaking under the tempestuous winds and the waves. Uh, the great fear was that they, that they surely would be carried into the Syrian sands. That was their, their fear off the coast of North Africa. That they'd been the fate of many ships caught by the Euroclidon. Terror gripped all on board. All hope was abandoned. How many ever heard this statement? Well, actually, you're going to find out who, who talked about who said it? Oh, let me go back one. When you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. Have you ever heard that? That's exactly what's going on. By the way, Franklin Roosevelt said that. And he said it because of World War II. So we know that this happens. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and, and before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Remember, he's the one that told them, don't sail. He says, then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. That's prophecy. Paul's telling them, none of you are going to die. And by the way, there's not, only f there's not just five people on this ship. You're going to find out how many people are on this ship. There's quite a bit. So what Paul's saying is this. 
Jesus waits at the end of your rope. If you're at the end of your rope, know that Jesus waits there. So Paul's telling them something. Now, everyone was terrified. Death was imminent, but not for Paul. He remained calm in the calamity. His trust was not in the ship. It wasn't in the crew, but it was in the resurrected Christ. The apostle had been through every imaginable kind of danger and difficulty in his life. And the Lord would come to him just at the right moment. Man, let me repeat that. If you're waiting for God to, tele to telegraph something for you long before it happens, stop waiting. God waits for the exact last moment. God will wear you out waiting. I want you to know that. He will wear you out waiting. He's doing something. That wait is always to, to purify us. This crisis at the sea was no exception. He knew what FDR may have known. You ever, you, have you ever been in an emotional or spiritual storm? Anybody ever been there? Come on, raise your hands if you've been there. How do you survive a storm? How do you survive an emotional storm, a spiritual storm, a physical storm? How do you survive those things? When the doctor gives you a bad report, when you're not feeling like you used to when you were first saved and you're feeling like you've lost something, or when your emotions are just torn all over the place, how do you survive those storms? All seems lost. You've already given up so much. You threw in everything. You threw everything overboard. Every planet you had goes overboard. Every, that's why Luke's telling you this. He's talking about total abandonment. He's talking about the feeling we get when we've tried everything and nothing works. This is why he's giving you about throwing the tackle overboard. About, and you try to tighten everything down. You try to pull it all together. But it seems the ship, your ship is still breaking up. How many are getting it? That's why he's giving you all these details. It's a life message. You're trying to hold your ship together and it seems to be breaking up at the sea and everything you do is not working. Oh, you're trusting God, but everything you do is not working. You're wondering what's going to happen and you're wondering if you're going to drift into that area that's so dangerous that you're going to die that this isn't going to happen at all. Listen, you cannot calm the storm, so stop trying to calm it. What you can do is calm yourself. The storm will pass. Trust me, storms pass. I don't care what you're going through today. If you're still alive and you still have breath, which obviously you do, any storm you're facing will pass. Somebody say amen. God will carry you through every storm and give you strength to make it. It's his promise to us. If Jesus did it, why do you think Jesus walks on the water during a storm? Why do you think, why do you think Jonah is in a storm? Why do you think you have Noah with the greatest storm that was ever there? Why do you think you have Paul in a storm? There's a, there's a link through scripture. God wants you to know that life is not a bowl of cherries. And if it is, most of us, a lot of us, just get the pits. Life's tough. How many of you know life's tough? God's not telling you it's not. He's telling you it is. But, be, but hang in there because the storm, will be, the storm will pass. I give you a little acronym for it. Strength to overcome reveals maturity. So whatever storm you go through, you're going to have a maturity, a maturity that comes out of that. That's the strength. There's something advantageous about getting through a storm. There's nothing advantageous of being in one, but there's something very advantageous about getting out of one. And I'll give you a personal illustration of that in a moment tonight. So all seems lost. You've given up almost everything you possibly can. And we see these things that are going on. So what I did something is I wrote a poem for you tonight. I read it to Wilder last night. He didn't get sick, so I'm going to read it tonight. Here's my poem. I call it The Storm. The storms of life arrive cold and gray. At times they seem to take your breath away. But faith won't falter in their volatile sea when your trust is securely anchored in me, speaking from the first person of God. Your eyes, your lips, your sight, your sound need not focus on what's around. And when it roars as a beast loud as a thousand drums, though you think you're the, la the least, it's to you my help comes. When daggers of doubt fall with a thunder's cry, remember, always remember, you're the apple of my eye. So when battle-tossed, may your spirits arise 
as I calm your fears and pitch dark skies. It's my poem for you tonight. That is a credo. Then after a long fast, a messenger of the Lord comes to Paul and assures him and says this. For this very night, verse 23, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. So you're seeing Paul tell them something and in his, in his message to them, he's talking about how he's gotten his information. And the message was unmistakable. It says this, uh, saying, fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar and lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Now I'm going to go a couple different areas tonight to get you to where we want to go to, to the end of this. So Paul says, don't worry about it. We're going to lose the ship. No life is going to be lost. An angel stood by me and it told me that I'm going to, I'm going to be at Rome and Caesar and no one's going to be lost. We're going to lose the ship and no one's going to be lost. I want you to understand what he's saying. The message is unmistakable. Let me stop here and explain something. When God says to Paul, I have given you all them through this angel that sail with thee, I'm sure many of them that were on that ship, and you'll see how many in a moment, were not saved. Matter of fact, I tell, I'll probably venture to say 95% of them weren't saved. They're not believers, and they're certainly not acting as Christians. But, and here's the implication, for those of us praying for our unsaved family, or for our relatives, it's our unsaved relatives and unsaved friends, Paul's faith was a cover for everyone that was around him. Now listen to it. His faith allowed them to automatically come under the banner of God's grace and his security. And he promises the same will happen in our households. It doesn't matter if you have children that are so far away from God that you, you, you have given up hope. As long as you are holy and you're trusting God, there is a cover for your household. There's, another, there's, a, there's verses that tell us that. In Hebrews 11.7 it says this, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. We don't know how his household was. It doesn't tell us what their spiritual, their spiritual situation was. It was by the cover of Noah's faith, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. For 1 Corinthians 7.14 For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean but now they're holy. If you are, if you are saved and you have an unsaved spouse the Bible says that your family is protected even though they're unsaved you're, because of your holiness. There's another verse in the Corinthians that tells us by one is the household made holy. I want you to understand what this is saying. We know the scriptures. Listen, it says this. It says in uh, Acts 16 30 to 31 it says sirs what must I do to be saved the Philippian jailer so they said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household we quote that all the time but that is the righteous passing of a cover that's the covering if you get saved your household has a promise come on somebody say amen my father got saved on his deathbed the man never went to church a day in his life the man wasn't angry he wasn't angry at God he just never had anything there but somebody must have witnessed to this man because basically he got saved and I saw the ripple effect happen all the way to me and my sister, my mother, my, my nephew. It's because there's, his household came under a banner, under a promise. Come on, someone say amen. You are as much serving God. Listen, Spurgeon said this. You are as much serving God in looking after your own children and training them up in God's fear and minding the house and making your household a church for God as you would be if you had been called to lead an army to battle for the Lord of hosts. Every single one of us that are saved in a house, even if you're the only one, you have a tremendous mission in that house. It's better than you even being on the army of the Lord's host because you are leading a house in your salvation, in your holiness. There's a cover that God's blessing is on that house. So, let's go on a little bit more. Let me tell you what's going on here. He says it again. 
or I, I'm saying it again. Last night there appeared beside me an angel of God, whom I belong and whom I serve. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You're destined to appear before Caesar, and God grants you the safety of all who are sailing with you. It's a promise. These people were not saved. These people were under the cover because someone righteous was on that boat. Listen, if Paul hadn't been on that boat, you'd never read this. That someone righteous was on that boat. By the way, I don't want to go here, but maybe one day I'll teach on it. It's called angelology. Angel appeared to him. What's the purpose of angels? Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are sent to us. They're sent to minister to us. An angel ministered to Paul. I promise you that before that angel came, Paul was just as afraid as everybody else was. Because you can have faith and still be afraid. Somebody say amen. Angels carry out God's judgment. Angels serve God. Angels praise God. Angels are messengers. Angels protect God's people. Angels do not marry. Matter of fact, Jesus said they have no sex. So when you hear about Nephilim, and which is everywhere today, the teaching of, of angels coming down and cohabitating with women, it's, it's making Jesus a liar. They have no sex. They don't marry, they have no sex. It's, it's not impossible. Angels do not die, by the way, and angels encourage. Let me give you a little bit more. The purpose of angels, one more time. They worship God, but are not to receive worship. If an angel receives worship, that's a devil, because they're not receive worship. Uh, when Joshua stood on the mountain in Joshua chapter 5 and a messenger of God came, he thought it was an angel. And he started to take, and uh, basically, no, he, he, he thought it was an angel, but he, the, the messenger said, take off your shoes because the place you're standing is holy. That was a Christophany. That was Christ, not an angel. An angel would never demand worship. Last time someone did, they got thrown into hell. His name is Lucifer. They're ministering spirits. They're guides. Angels do God's will, but they can choose to sin. They have a free will. A third of them chose to follow Lucifer. So we know that some things are going on here that's supernatural. Listen, Acts 27, 25, and 26. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So we're going to shipwreck. <laughs> I love that. Can you imagine? Listen, guys, it's going to be okay. But get ready because we're going to, this ship's going to get destroyed. Now he goes on. Let me tell you what's going on here. So chatter of fear really gets going when things aren't working out. Can you imagine these guys and what they're saying? All you're doing is feeding your fears. You cannot feed your fear. You put your faith in the one who makes everything happen. So many times when things don't work out for us, we feed our fears with negative talk. We feed our fear with chatter. We feed our fear with calling others up who have gone through the same thing and didn't work out too well for them. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to put your faith in God. When Paul relayed the good news to the centurion, the owner, and the sailors of the ship, he was in command of that ship. He was the one now in command of that ship. He was calm. He was confident. We picture his radiant face in contrast to the seasick and panic-stricken passengers and crew. His voice rungs, rings above the howling wind communicating new hope. They'd all be saved. What an interesting word that, that is. Even though they were to have to run aground on an island, awe and wonder filled the hearts of all that were on board. This is no ordinary man who exuded the vibrant hope. The prisoner in chains pointed away from himself to the source of his discernment and his bright promise. Therefore, he says, take heart, verse 25, men, for I believe God that will all come to pass just as he told me. So, before Paul's talks to them, they're negative. We talk negatively ourselves all the time. I'll never. This won't. I can't. It's hopeless. Listen, we do it all the time. The Bible says this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous ha right hand. Isaiah tells us that. That doesn't say God says, sometimes I'll do that. I'll do that every now and then. It doesn't even say, I'll do it when you pray. 
It says, I will do it. It's a promise from God. Listen. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. You have to discipline yourself to not fear. Fear comes over every single one of us. You have to discipline yourself. I won't fear today. Listen, when they told me I had stage 4 cancer, the first thing that comes in is a, a wave of fear, a huge wave of fear. Now, I'm going to die in seven months. I mean, that's not something you take standing up. I remember when they, when, they, when they diagnosed me with stage 4 cancer, and they diagnosed me with myelofibrosis, and then I went and they diagnosed me with, with B-cell lymphoma, and double, and I went out, I went out to the parking lot. When they told me that I almost fainted, and I never fainted in my life, I went out to the parking lot, and I said to Cheryl, I said, man, if God wants me, he just loaded both barrels uh, with, that, with, that, with that shotgun. He's going to take me out. Two, my, my oncologist says, you have two rare diseases. Two rare ones. Either one of them will kill you. And she said, that can't be right. I'm going to send you to MD Anderson. And, but when I walked out of there, how many of you know the fear boat was waiting for me? I mean, that fear boat was coming in. The sails were ablaze. And I realized, man, I've got I to I discipline myself not to fear this thing. That's a tough thing. That's an easy thing to say. It's a tough thing to do. So, don't fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. Listen to this. Fear comes because you're being punished. If you're saved, your punishment was already taken. Amen. You don't have to fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Powerful scripture verses, especially in line of what we're talking about. Look, God, now listen to it real well. God may alter your plans. Your ship may wreck. I want you to hear that. But he will never stop the dream he placed in you. You can, there's, there's wrecks I've faced as a Christian. But it's never stopped the dream God's given me. Listen, it didn't for Paul. His dream's being realized. Paul's dream, he preached the gospel in Rome and out of Rome. It was his dream in Acts chapter 19.21. In Ephesus, he said that, that he wants to go to Rome. In Romans 15, he, said, he wrote Romans from Corinth. Before he was ever in Rome, he wrote Romans, by the way. And uh, Acts 23.11 was encouraged by God to go to Rome. A third of Acts deals with Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. It's his dream. So a, a ship is being wrecked. It doesn't matter. His dream's not going to be wrecked. How many of you get this? So something doesn't work out the way you want it to work out. It doesn't matter. God will still give you and a desired future and a destiny. Come on, someone say amen. God will, listen, I promise you, God will get you there wherever there is. Now, what you lose in the way, what breaks up in the way, obviously wasn't needed for your journey. You're not getting it tonight. Don't worry about having to throw things overboard on the way. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about trying to keep it all together so you don't have it all together. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Sometimes the ropes of our efforts can't hold our ship together. Don't worry about the evil sands that threaten to shipwreck you. Man, don't worry about feeling like a wreck yourself. You probably are at times. Lots of us are wrecks. That doesn't mean that God's abandoned you. It just means that you can't handle certain things and you've got to double down and trust them. Okay, think deeply about this next quote because I wrote you a poem and I actually have a quote for you. Man, what's going on here? God turns things that get destroyed in our lives into things that get employed for our good. Everything you go through, everything that's getting destroyed in your life is because God's going to use it somehow for your good. He's going to employ it for your good. That's a great quote. I wonder who said it. So, look at Paul's three steps to God's ultimate plan for his life. The stormy way. 
Paul travels as a prisoner and experiences wisdom is ignored. A hurricane wind. Desperate people on the ship. Sailors endangered lives. Soldiers preparing to kill him. We'll get to that next week. Believe it or not, they're going to try to kill him. Shipwreck. A poisonous snake bite. And Paul's gospel journey. Listen, that's his first part. The stormy way. God's plan succeeds. God's plans cannot be stopped by human sinfulness. The Jews hated him. The Roman had greed and weakness. Our own sinful attitudes. Human folly. Circumstances. A great storm. A deadly snake. And then the third part is this. God's plans surprise us. Paul's coming as a prisoner to Rome. God encourages him. Paul knew struggles. Joseph's dreams were realized. The cross of Christ. God uses people's evil plans. The great exchange is possible. Jesus went through storms to carry out God's plan. The God's plan will surprise you. I love when God surprises me. So tonight, let me ask you, where are you on your spiritual journey? Where are you on your physical journey? Where are you? Are you in a storm? Are you in the stormy way, the first part of it? Are you, are you, are you midway? You're opposed by almost everything and everyone around you, but you're still trusting God. God, or are in your third part of the journey? Are you surprised that God is working out or has worked something out for you and already has done it? Let me give you a, a little illustration before I close tonight. In October 2007 to January 2008, I was in the midst of stage four cancer. For me, and you've heard my story, and I, I, I'm not telling it to you just to tell you it again, but for me, the, storm, the stormy way was there. Stage four cancer, I was in the first, first part of Paul's thing. I was, I was in the storm, totally in the storm. Matter of fact, one of the songs that became one of my favorite songs is about the storm. Stage 4 cancer, one problem after the next. Bilateral cellulosis, not able to walk, not able to get up from my bed and walk two feet to the bathroom because my legs were total purple. Blood clots in my legs from the chemo, going to my heart to kill me. Forget about the cancer, that was killing me also. So I was in a storm, and it was hitting me hard. I wasn't getting any good results. I wasn't getting any good favorable comments from anybody, from any doctors or anybody. Sure, I was encouraging me, which was, which was great. Other people that even knew me would come and they, you had, they had that look of death on their face. That pity, you know. They'd look at me and it's like, this guy's going to die and I know it. What do I say to him? I'm telling you. From January to 2008 to July of 2008, it was opposed by everyone and everything telling me but by my, and by my own body. I lay in a hospital, go, go to the hospital every three weeks, I would, get stay, I would get extensively tough chemotherapy. I'd give me, they'd give me steroids. I was on 22 medications. I would get blood transfusions as soon as I came back to, to, um, to um, Birmingham. I would, get, I would get platelet transfusions every other day, 22 blood transfusions. Uh, I was not producing red blood cells, white blood cells. My, I was just a mess. I was, in a, I was opposed by everything. My body was, was almost shutting down. I would look, I would sit on my dock and I would look at the sunset and I'd think, man, this might be my last sunset. I was okay with it because I took care of the fear a long time ago. But I realized that I was being opposed. Doctors were, were giving me diagnoses. They were wondering whether or not I was going to make it. Doctors that my son was working for said, go down and be with your dad. He's going to die. I mean, you know, it wasn't, a whole, it wasn't a picnic. And then, July 2008 to May of 2018, for 10 years, 10 years, God's plans came through. God surprised me. I'm so, you know, I tell doctors right now, they'll talk to me, or, or my, my son and my, my dog, most of my family works for some doctors, and either drug reps or something, and I'll tell them, they'll talk to their doctors, I'll meet them at their house, and they'll say, now Mark tells me that you had, you could have had stage four cancer. I said, yeah, I did have stage four cancer. And they look at me like, really? What? You know, and they can't believe it. You know why? Because God surprised me, and that surprises others. Trust me, God will surprise you. If you trust him, He'll surprise you. I don't care what ship is being battered today. I don't care what you're looking at today. Aren't you all about ready to be surprised by God? 
Aren't you inspired saying, God, I'm ready for the surprise. Come on, bring it to me. I'm talking about surprise that's so amazing you never even saw it coming. Let me close by reminding you of courage. Consigned, given over to this one fact, God is in control. Everybody say, God is in control. Difficulties to deal with, three times the word difficulty is mentioned in Acts 27. Fears to face, continuous fearing and afraid, three times in Acts 27. Winds to weather, wind and tempest, nine times in Acts 27. Luke wants you to know that life is about fear. It's about dealing with difficulties, and it's about the winds of change that break you up. He wants you to know it. That's why he gave you all the details. You have your own certain sands. You have your own things that you fear. You have your own things that you're trying to hold together. And then he wants you to understand that God is in charge and God is on the throne. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne. By the way, it's after a king died and Isaiah had no hope for his nation. Oh, his throne is in heaven and his kingdom rules over the earth, Psalm tells us. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Loving kindness and truth go before him and from him. Courage knows that God is able to make all things work together for good for his children. How many are the children? How many of you are a child of God today? Let me tell you what it's going to take. God is already ready to give us a surprise. Here's what it's going to take. And I can't do this for you. I can't teach this. All you can do is take it yourself. There's one word that it's going to take for you to enact the surprises of God. Just one word. And you are right smack dab in the middle of the word. Believe. I believe. Not Pastor Mark believes. Not your brother or your mother believes. I believe. People come to me sometimes for me to pray for them. They say, oh, pastor, you know, God's done so much for you. Would you pray for me? And I, I want to tell them, it's not me. It's you believing. You believe. When you come to me and say, I'm believing, I'm praying, I'm believing, then you're going to see the surprise of God. Amen. So tonight, would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's so much there. Luke wants us to know. We're not finished with Paul on this shipwreck yet. We haven't even wrecked the ship yet, by the way. That's coming. The 272 men on that ship are going to rebel against Paul. 272. It's a huge ship. But tonight, let me ask you a question. Maybe you're here and you're feeling this, or maybe you're listening on Facebook or YouTube, and you're saying, you know what? Man, that's exactly what I'm going through. I'm facing a storm, and that storm is... It's, it's killing me. It's, it's making me feel like I'm going crazy. It makes me feel like I'm, sh I'm wrecked. It makes me feel like I got, I'm giving up so many things. And I'm not seeing any, I'm not seeing any fair weather in, in store or in the future. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Be honest and raise your hand. Man, hands going up all over the place. And I'm sure the people are listening to me. So I want you to stand tonight as I pray for you. I want you to say one thing, but I don't want you to say it just flippantly. I want you to really think about it. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to count to three, and in a moment, I want you to say, I believe. I'm going to count to three, and when I count to three and you say it, I want it to go from your words and your lips inside your spirit and believe. Think about something that you're trusting God for. And listen, it's by faith. When you say, I believe, you're enacting, you're throwing a switch of faith. And Bible says, by faith, you can move a mountain. So, you ready? One, two, Three. I Father, I thank you tonight. 
I thank you, Lord God, that we do believe. I believe for myself, Lord. I believe for others, Lord. I combine my faith with them, Lord God. Even though it takes them to enact it, Lord God, I confirm that with them today, Lord God. I pray for them today. I pray for those that are listening to this message, Lord God. Give them hope, oh God. Thank you for the surprises in Mark Carell's life. Thank you, Lord God, that when the enemy thought he could drag me someplace, that you, you would break the ropes. Thank you, Lord God, that, that when everyone gave up, you never gave up. Thank you, Lord God, that my dream is still alive, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that you have taken me through the, through the shallows, Lord God. And I thank you, Lord God, that no matter what was wrecked, Lord, you reestablished. I thank you, Lord, for my good. And tonight, Lord God, I pray for everyone that's raised their hand, for everyone that says, I believe. Lord, we don't need an army behind us to say, I believe. We can stand up and say, I believe. I believe in a God who meets my needs. I believe in a God who answers my prayers. I believe in a God who will never let me down. I believe in a God who forgives me, even if I've sinned the, the tonight coming into this, into this place. I believe in a God who forgives and casts my sins to the uttermost parts of the sea. I believe in a God who makes all things work to good for those who are called according to His purpose. Tonight, Lord God, I pray a blessing on everyone that is here tonight, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that their statement, I believe, will have fruition this very week, Lord God. They'll see answers to prayer. Surprise us, Lord God. You always do. Bless your name, Lord Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you.